0: Thanks for downloading a 3CR podcast. 3CR is an independent community radio station based in Melbourne, Australia. We need your financial support to keep going. Go to www.3cr.org.au for more
1: information and to donate online. Now stay tuned for your 3CR podcast.
2: Welcome to Tuesday Home time for the 22nd of September. Jen Bartlett with you until 6 tonight. Today we'll be posing the question for the future, Cruelty or Humanity, with Emeritus Professor Stuart Rees. Part 2 of the interview with Philippine-Australia activist May Kotsakis, looking up the plight of Filipino workers and students overseas, and also the human rights emergency in the Philippines itself. Activist, author and researcher Fred Fuentes, looking up the upcoming election In Venezuela, how you can help and kids through Olive Kids with Amin Abbas, Jacob Rick with week two of the Julian Assange show trial at the Old Bailey in London, but he's also here too, Mr. Kevin Healy.
3: A week, Jane, listener, when in a week that was scoop, we managed to secure access to the Gas Profits Association board meeting held six days ago discussing the answer to Troubler was his energy problems. We have a very difficult decision to make. The government says if we don't spend billions on a network of pipelines across the country to transport our gas to markets just everywhere, then the government will spend those billions to build them for us. I say, Richard, that's a serious threat. It's holding a gun at our heads. If we don't pay to build them, the government will that's the choice we face we spend billions on our behalf or the government spends billions on our behalf my god richard it's a tough decision we pay or they pay our money or the public purse very difficult very very difficult but look at it this way the public will benefit from having the capacity to transport fossils across the country for decades And the billions we don't spend could be utilised for the public good through bigger dividends for us and for our shareholders. Yes, as I said, it's a very, very difficult decision, our money or everyone else's money. But we have another huge decision to make. The government says if we don't build a gas-fired power station, then it will build it. Oh dear, Richard, more difficult decisions if we don't spend billions on a fossil power station to serve the community for decades, the government will? I raise something that may make an almost impossible decision a little more possible, a a little more acceptable. Can we assume that once the government funds and builds it, it will be privatized so we can bring our private sector expertise and efficiency to this bloated hand of a public sector asset? Look, Chuck, if we do concede and consent to the government spending the billions, we would have to extract that sort of guarantee, demand that sort of guarantee, and I think we can assume the government would look on such a proposal favourably. After all, it is not the government's role to insert its dead hand in what is clearly the role of business, the role of enterprise definitely not we must keep the dead hand of government out of business but we pay or they pay goodness me the government's playing hard ball but these sorts of difficult difficult decisions Prove we can earn every, earn every cent of the director's fees we so deserve and expose those commy, left-wing, greeny irrational arguments that those fees are excessive and obscene. We pay or they pay. What, what a dilemma. We'll leave our scoop there, but doesn't the government know how to have the private sector shaking in its boots? It's your choice. You pay or we pay. What a threat. For those who think climate change, if there is such a thing, could be a bit of a problem with gas, gas, gas just everywhere. The government's long-awaited energy policy, methane, 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 along with CO2, 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 Rest assured, rest assured, because the Minister for Fossils, Angus Tailings, declared extracting and piping gas across the country and urging those states which have some bans on extraction to lift those bans and extract more and more, would allow us, he said this, and he's a responsible Minister of the Crown, so we can't doubt him, would allow us to meet our Paris commitments, a fossil solution to fossil pollution. Angus say a slightly more detailed explanation might have helped. The only explanation we got by week's end was that a parallel solution, along with gas to erase pollution, was to allow the various renewable energy bodies to fund that beautiful source of renewable energy, beautiful coal, as Big Supremo scuttled them more less, son, aka Scummo, and Angus No. funding the funding swallowing burying your head in the sand, rather than leaving the gas and coal buried where they lie, not, not that we'd use the word lie when it comes to the government's commitment to pollution because as it's proved this week it's totally committed to pollution capture and storage why not not capture and leave it where nature stored it although concern over climate change by those who think there might be such a thing as is misplaced because that world export expert donald informed us the world is about to get cooler global cooling yes U.S. of the U.N. of the U.S. of the world big supremo Donald travelled the poor did his dynamic leadership bit visiting the fire-ravaged areas of the West Coast, not, not too close to the actual infernos, mind you, and explained the infernos were their own thought. They hadn't got their brooms out and swept the forests. But at least he did acknowledge the climate scientists. They didn't know what they were talking about, he said, implying he did. So, as we approach another fire season, we now have the solution. Booms to the ready. Also expressing concern, Mr. Full of Gas. Yes, displaying his concern overseeing public health, Scuttle then said the economy across the country must reopen and stay open. Uh, But what if that leads to a new wave of the pandemic like last time we opened up? Reopen and stay open a sentiment backed up by the airline that used to be our airline as it runs newspaper ads, some full page, exhorting us to ensure governments open up the airways. Not that there's anything selfish in all this like profit, but we mentioned last week how the airline that used to be has offered 2,500 workers the fabulous opportunity to bid for their own jobs as long as they can save $180 Oh, and unrelated, but there's been more than speculation that as the JobKeeper billions are flying at some caring employers are announcing shareholder dividends and bonuses, while the money meant for their workers isn't quite reaching their workers, as if a good corporate citizen would rot the system. Well, unrelated as I said, but figures last week showed four good corporate citizens had absorbed half, that is half, of all JobKeeper payments. Two casino companies, good old Jamie Puker, a private education company, good old State Aid, and top of the list at $267 million, yep, the airline that used to be, as well as copying another $258 million in government subsidies. Given it's sadly had to let go about 9,000 workers so far, imagine the damage without government largesse to a company privatised to get it away from government. And big supremo Alan Joystick has also managed to get the media barons to run his ads for free, and he's setting the states against each other to bid for who giving more, lots more government largesse to establish or or more correctly, relocate the company headquarters. But, Alan said, it really hurt to have to sadly let workers go. A hurt assuaged only by the millions that land in his bank account every year. The New South Wales Coalition government was threatened by the hayseed and sheep shit lot over the koala bit of koala-lision, arguing the need to chainsaw every tree in the state And for goodness sake, the koalas are pretty stuffed anyway. In fact, stuffed koalas might be the only ones left to see. The hayseed and sheepshed lot putting forward a firm proposal that they break with the government but retain their ministerial positions and perks. A a principled stand maintained until the government said, OK, piss off, but you can't keep your ministerial positions and perks At which stage, the firm firm principled lot capitulated immediately and completely, giving the koalas a bit more breathing space for as long as they can keep breathing. The government, caring business class evil union meetings to discuss how to make workers' lives a bit more miserable, has had a split. Between the caring employers and the ACTU, I hear you say. Well, no. Between the Business Profits Council and the sundry other caring employer, good responsible unions like the Industry Profits Group, where our old mate Innes will cost the workers et al., are livid that the Business Profits Council and the ACTU have agreed to an enterprise bargaining proposal that does not give boot for boot. That is the better off overall test, because that defeats the whole purpose of negotiation if you can't make workers worse off. And they say, and this is even worse, the business profits ACTU proposal could force workers to join an evil union. Or, as the true capitalist review, wisely editorialized attacking the evil maritime union for destroying the economy in a disputed port botany, They also persist with their outdated class struggle rhetoric as if the modern waterfront pits ground down labour against exploitative bosses. Finally, as if. Any wonder we are forced to call them evil. Good afternoon.
2: And thanks once more to Mr Kevin Healy.
4: The current world in which the higher education sector operates is characterized by profit and power. And as universities are further incorporated into global neoliberalism, These ideas of the public good face the most serious threat that they have ever faced. COVID pandemic, besides highlighting all of the other fissures in society, has also really highlighted the terrible inequalities that have long existed within the sector. The precarity, the overwork, declining mental health caused by intensifying privatization and the privileging of profits at all costs. And students who should be our co-learners in this process face mounting debt. If this pandemic has done nothing else, it has shown us that this system in its current iteration is unsustainable. We have to organize and fight against it. There is no other way. There is no alternative to quote somebody who shall remain nameless.
2: You're listening to Radical Radio 3CR.
5: Don't have a million dollars and still want to have a good education for your kid? Tune into the Dogs Program. We are the defenders of government schools. 12 pm on Saturdays here on 3CR, 855 and AM Dial
1: Podcast, streaming live on 3CR.org.au and 3CR Digital. We defend government schools because they need it.
2: G'day, my name is Margie Thorpe. You are listening to 3CR Community Radio 855 on your dial. Stuart Rees is an Australian academic, human rights activist, author, founder of the Sydney Peace Foundation, emeritus professor at the Centre for Peace and Conflict Studies at the University of Sydney, and recipient of the Jerusalem Accords Peace Prize. His latest book, just released, is Cruelty or Humanity, Challenges, Opportunities and Responsibilities and it's published by Bristol University Press. I'm wondering, Stuart, if there was a specific example of cruelty in this world, arguably a world full of cruelty, which in a sense drove you to write a book like Cruelty or Humanity, or was it more a need to try and understand and admit violence and cruelty in order to move to a better place, to move to a better future?
5: Well, I think it was two things. One, it was the realisation that cruelty had been the central part of just about every government's policy for centuries, but it was massively denied. That was the sort of general reaction. But there was a specific event when a blogger for free speech in Saudi Arabia was sentenced to 10 years in prison and 1,000 lashes that was that incident was the last straw me. It was on top of you know all sorts of experiences in in uh, Sri Lanka and Cambodia and in particular in Gaza and on the west Bank.
2: but surely cruelty is not humanity. how do we get to the stage where cruelty is accepted in the sense that it is
5: okay well. In the opening part of the book, I tried to explain that in in about two pages. Look, there's a long tradition of people trying to distinguish themselves from other people. It's usually called stigmatizing, stigmatizing the other. And um, government is carried on by labeling certain people as worthy and large numbers of other people as unworthy you see it not just in personal relationships, but you see it in policy. So as soon as you, stigma, as soon as you see, you, you call uh, homeless people or indigenous people or asylum seekers or refugees or um, any, any so-called or dis- or left-wing dissidents unworthy, then you're entitled to be cruel to them, because they finish up being seen as non-human. Once they're non-human, That means that people, the governments, think they can do what they like. I mean, the biggest, the best current example, of course, is the way the Israelis treat the Palestinians. They do not really think these are other human beings.
2: But then there's a sense that we live in a, a world where there are international laws against cruelty and degrading treatment of people. But countries, you could talk about Israel, just totally ignore those laws.
5: Well, yeah, you're absolutely right to mention that there are all sorts of laws, and I deal with that in the first few pages of the book, that forbid cruelty to others, cruelty to animals, cruelty, to, cruelty in particular to women and children. But international law since 1948, or in the past couple of decades, has been regarded as irrelevant. The, the um, morality, ethics, Adherence to international law have been thrown out the window. You can see, I mean, Boris Johnson and his government have just passed a law that says we don't abide by the treaties we sign. We don't agree with international law. It's, you know, it's not just this. Like America, America doesn't care about international law, except when except when it suits them. The International Criminal Court is um, is, is not accepted by um, by the United States. So law remains incredibly important but it's been bypassed
2: can I bring in the issue of cruelty to animals and the fact that many human beings accept this but they won't they might not accept cruelty to human beings
5: sure look the argument my argument is and Peter Singer the great philosopher uh, argues the same thing if you try to be relative about cruelty. You can be cruelty to some things and some people, but not to others. Then it has no particular binding force. So the cruelty to animals is inseparable from cruelty to human beings. It's a bit like saying that um, individuals' human rights are separate from the way we treat the planet. In other words, if we Whereas uh, Aboriginal people know that... Um, the health of the land is tied up with their own well-being. So the the ethics of the child, let's say, or the young person who is cruel to an animal in their home, you can't then pretend that they are they have all sorts of moral scruples when it comes to other forms of cruelty. Um, so if you stick, so there's in other words, there is an abiding principle about uh, not doing not doing harm.
2: Where do you see the role of the media over the years in fostering this uh, this cruelty and allowing Good it to question.
5: happen? Good question. Good question. Good question. Your radio station accepted, of course. Yes. Um, look, uh, I'm going to steal what um, what the wonderful investigative reporter Seymour Hearst says about that. He says that the... the not only have states, the powerful uh, governments and institutions, practice cruelty, but the the media, the ma- mainstream media, has let them get away with it. It has failed to hold them accountable, and you can see that with regard to the behaviour of the United States governments in the Middle East. That even great, apparently great newspapers like the Washington Post and the New yep. York Times fail to hold and accountable and um, the toxic influence of the Murdoch media around the world uh, a, a media outlet that seems to think that derision is a form of journalism they facilitate the cruelty not just by turning a blind eye but sometimes by by thinking it's a great idea i mean the justice for the palestinians has never been a feature of Mainstream media in this country. In fact, they're scared; they're frightened to, um, mostly frightened to comment on it. So the media, the media has colluded with cruelty.
2: Can you point to a society today, or maybe a few societies where cruelty is not the norm?
5: Well, I mean, my argument is that just about every state and the representatives of states use cruelty. I mean, the, the commitment to free market economic policies has produced massive social and economic inequalities, which are arguably a form of cruelty. Look, usually where states are more equal, such as the Nordic countries, particularly particular Norway, you get a greater, what I would call, civility. You get a great sense, greater sense of security and civility, the security that comes from, for example, having no fees for students at school and university, having universal health insurance. Those policy issues are related to a culture that outlaws cruelty. I'm not saying there's no particular instance, but I'm looking, I'm looking mostly, I'm looking almost entirely at state cruelty and the reaction of of groups such as terrorist groups, non-state groups, who respond in the same way.
2: The other side to your title is humanity. Let's talk about the challenges, the opportunities, and the responsibilities. Does everyone have those?
5: Oh, yeah. If only not. I mean, you could argue we all have them because of the next moral obligation, but one of my arguments is that it makes life more interesting. Nobody on their deathbed says, I, I, I wish I'd been cruel to more people. But it is likely that we, we, we would reflect and say, Oh, my commitment to a common humanity gave me a sense of some uh, achievement, a sense of well being. Yeah, the the humanitarian alternatives are the, uh, are the only way to build a just post- COVID economy and society and I can you know take 60 seconds to spell out the steps as to how you you do that okay well look essentially it's about what I call a language for humanity if we don't have the, the language to achieve a socially just order, a less destructive order, an order that will preserve planet earth Then you have to have the language in order to paint the visions of what you want to do. And the first part of the language is what I call restoring or redefining humanity. Being aware of what is going on around us, not sticking our heads in the sand. Being aware of these massive cruelties, the massive destruction and violence, because otherwise the the world's coming to a rapid end. You know, in, the, in his wonderful poem, um, The Second Coming, W.B. Yeats, the Irish poet, warned about the Second Coming was partly about um, the best black audition and the worst uh, are full of passionate intensity, is what he said. Please be aware of Hannah Arendt, warned that people were blind to the events that led to the Second World War. So we have to be aware that the, the, right-wing, uh, the right-wing fascism, the, the concern with arms dealing, the, the sort of love of violence as a way to solve problems, is, is all around us very dangerous. Do you, want to, do you want me to elaborate? Well, we have to redefine what we understand by human rights. That's a responsibility for all of us in every possible context, in the home, in the workplace, in the community as well as in um, state politics or in international relations. It's there all the time. And it's it's human rights which is about the the only thing that makes life possible, the recognition of. And and it does not need a dependence on lawyers. Lawyers are important, but too often people think human rights is, is what lawyers do. No, human rights is the way we conduct relationships in every minute of our lies the second feature of the following on for that we have to redefine what we understand by politics we have to persuade the politicians we have to talk constantly about ideas that are should only be used in a non-destructive life-enhancing creative way there's too much idea of winning of of aggression you can see that to see that in the appalling behavior of Trump and his cohorts in the, in the United States. You can see it in the repugnant vote uh, of Brexit in, um, in Britain. And another feature of this I make here about redefining a politics of the future concerns the courage. If you're going to have humanitarian alternatives, you have to have courage in public life. it's not just the courage of famous people who get awarded with prizes, but the courage of the ordinary folk. And there's a wonderful example in my book by uh, which Edward Snowden, on the run from his American pursuers, he was in Hong Kong, and he was sheltered. He was given refuge by four refugees, one from the Philippines, three from Sri Lanka, who were living in a shack with no means, no resources, stateless themselves but they sheltered him they gave him great sense of um, dignity security and they had nothing to gain for it except their response to another human being i mean and that courage has got to be central to a different kind of politics there's too much cowardice in canberra in, in westminster in washington and elsewhere i won't deal with the dictatorships at least not at this point
2: you alluded to poetry in your talking there about the language of humanity. Right. How important is, is poetry for you?
5: Oh, it's crucial. It's like oxygen. It's crucial. If there's a poetry in your life, metaphorically, it usually has a sense of coherence and well-being. But the point about poets is that they can express uh, visions which elude us in prose. Look, I mean, I happen to use poetry. It could be great art. It could be great music of whether it's pop music or the classics. But, but I've used poetry to mean to, to go with the political analysis. I mean, the romantic English poet, William Wordsworth, who most people think wrote about daffodils and skylarks, he observed the cruelty that was inherent in the, in the industrial revolution. He looked at abusive power and he said, what a fair world were ours for birth to paint if power could live at ease with self-restraint. Now, <laughs> that gives you a, a, an amazing image about the, the non-destructive, life-enhancing use of power. And I've talked a lot about the um, a language and of, of, inter, of interdependence, a language of internationalism this absurd notion about sovereignty and our borders and making countries great at the expense of other people. And you only have to go to the wonderful Australian-Aboriginal poet, Nunuko, who 70 years ago gave us the prescription for post-COVID societies. If only we would read and listen. She said, I'm international, never, uh, never mind tribes. I'm international, I'm not for colour jives. I'm international, never mind place. I'm for humanity, all one race. And, um, you know, that's just, uh, that prescription rings in my ears.
2: I'd imagine, Stuart, there's a lot of people you would like to read this book.
5: Well, I'm hoping it creates gives a sense of not only realism, but optimism. I hear people all over the place saying, "Look, we desperately need optimism." There's a pessimism about the future. I talk to, to students who have who, who graduate with debt, who can't go to university anymore, who have no prospect of jobs or no prospect of being able to own a home. I look at the um, misery of some, of refugees of my friends in the in the Gaza Strip. The uh, Rohingya people who I've communicated with recently, in you know, marooned on a
6: on a hillside,
5: a million of them in Bangladesh, or take the, the poor people stuck on the uh, the Greek island of Lesbos,
7: whose home,
5: you know, what homes they had, what pens they had, and now now all, all burnt down. So I want acro- across the globe, particularly in Australia, in Europe, and in North America, I want people to read this because it's about the past in order to comprehend how we can, you know, in the short time we have left, do something creative and human rights-based for the future. And that, that's the promise in this book.
2: Do you feel that the short time we have left, is that how you feel?
5: Well, but yeah, I mean, I have a sense of urgency. I think I always have that. You know, I say to people, why? Given that you're only going to spend five minutes on the planet, why do you want to spend time being cruel to other people, or to the planet, or to or to animals? I mean, it, it does it doesn't make sense. There are so many wonderful things to do with your life. Why would you want to build more submarines and more guns and more walls and more fences and and have and when you go to America, one day just about the most thriving industry is building prisons. What does that tell us about humanity? I know there's terrible authoritarianism in China. There's, Russia is run by a bunch of thugs. But we no need to imitate that in any way. And yet, you know, secret police raids are on the rise in, in Australia in order to protect something called security the great God, the security. I mean, the security comes from, you know, knowing all about um, the mood and the movement and the music of Beethoven, the peace symphony. That's what my argument would, be, argument would be.
2: Just finally, Stuart, the consequences of the COVID-19. Do you see positives coming out of that as well as negatives?
5: The way we were living, the destructive way we were living, the destructive use of the planet, the concern with economic growth at all costs, the inv- human beings' invasion of animal habitat, uh, the pollution of rivers, seas, the uh, seas of all kinds, um, every part of the environment contributed to COVID 19. So we cannot afford we have to learn the lesson from that. So we can only we have to have much more caring, the caring that's that's gone into, you know, showing social distance, wearing masks, being more responsible about hygiene. That's an expression, it seems to me, of of not just self preservation, but of altruism in the interest of others. So that altruism in the interest of others is the only way to go. And the others include the planet, they include animals, they include everybody around the world. So there, yeah, there's a chance to, uh, learn from COVID-19 because it's a crisis. And every crisis in our lives, it might be the death of somebody we love, is, provides the, the challenge to learn. And you have to learn about the loss in order to move forward. So, there's a a crisis to learn from, which is what COVID-19 is.
2: Thank you very much.
5: Oh, Jan, thank you for your typical, beautiful interest.
2: I've been speaking with Professor Emeritus Stuart Rees about his new book, Cruelty or Humanity? Challenges, Opportunities and Responsibilities, published through Bristol University Press. You're listening to 3CR Community Radio, 855 AM. Visit the 3CR website at 3cr.org.au forward slash podcast to hear the most recent recording from each show or 3cr.org.au forward slash streaming to listen live.
8: What we're dealing with here is a total lack of respect for the law.
6: Tune in to Done by Law.
2: An informal
8: and irreverent look at the law. Critical insights and analysis from diverse community perspectives.
7: Done by Law,
6: 6 pm Tuesdays.
2: For change, we need to show broad community support. Show your support for walking and cycling in the City of Yarra by appearing as a champion on the Streets Alive website, representing your local street, neighbourhood or school. It's fast, free and simple.
4: Learn more at streets-alive-yarra.org. A 3CR supporter.
2: On the programme last week we heard from Philippine Australia human rights activist May Kotsakis, who was speaking about the abuse of migrants, workers and students from the Philippines here in Australia. We continue May's interview now. When we think about the problems facing the students here in Australia, you also have think about the the problems facing migrant workers in, in the Middle East and They're very, very bad, aren't they? Yes.
9: Yes, they were actually most of those who went back home when the uh, pandemic hit were from Middle East. It was quite difficult there uh, because, like, in the Middle East, many countries in the Middle East, they are not even allowed to, like, to talk to each other, you know. There, There are... There are many sort of customs and traditions and policies, government policies, that it's quite difficult for Filipinos who are not used to those kind of customs. Like they cannot even the meet, you know, they, uh, a man and a woman cannot talk to each other, things like that. And there were no support. It's quite difficult to get support from the Philippine government anywhere, anywhere in, uh, in the world. And with some countries like here, in Hong Kong and other countries where Filipinos can actually complain or can protest, then the Philippine government is forced to to offer some aid or some support. But in the Middle East where protests are not allowed, they can't even, you know, complain. It's quite difficult because the Philippine government is ignored them, you know. So those that were actually stranded when they, they came home to the Philippines and they had to quarantine for supposed to be 14 days, but many of them apparently get stuck in this certain auditorium or under the bridge or in the airport. At the airport, you see the pictures of, at the airport. They were sleeping on the floor. They cannot leave. They have to quarantine, but there is no space or no proper accommodation that the government has given them. It's just the way that they were treated like, you know, it's like they were treated like, But even animals, because animals sometimes, here in Australia, animals are given shelter, they were treated worse. When they were, the overseas Filipino workers are actually propping up and even maintaining the economy of the Philippines. One of the biggest exports of the Philippines is labor. When they need help, they need assistance, they are just ignored. We have this problem since the 1970s when the labor export program of the Philippines was actually introduced and the export of workers become systematic, government sort of uh, institutionalized. So the government even became an agent to send these uh, workers overseas, like DOEA, Philippine Overseas Employment Agency. Philippine government agents become, you know, employment agency to export workers. But then you would expect that because they are Filipino citizens, and because they have already earned money for the Philippine government, you would expect that when they need help, they will be given assistance by the Philippine government. Because in Australia, even those that are accused of like, drug, uh, you know, drug-related drug uh, crime, they were being assisted by Australian government.
2: But in the Philippines,
9: you don't expect support from the government at all.
2: Just looking at the situation at home in the Philippines... May, it just seems to be going from very bad to absolutely terrible.
9: Especially with the passing of this anti-terrorism law that was, uh, that was signed by the president into law on the 3rd of July. It is really very bad, you know, this, uh, this law, and uh, it will actually validate the human rights violation in the Philippines. Even protesting, or even just a plan to protest, has become illegal in the Philippines. So this is actually a measure by the the Turkey government to silence any opposition or any dissenting voice.
2: And the Australian government must take some responsibility for what's happening there because of the aid that we give the Philippines and not only aid in a trade sense or an economic sense, but military aid. Yes, of course. And... Like,
9: Australia is very vocal to any thing that uh, China is violating human rights in the Philippines, even offering the Hong Kong people to, to migrate in Australia. It's very vocal to criticize China. But in the Philippines, even with the, you know, with the number of those killings, the killings under the, the 30s war on drugs, and it is piling up, you know, every day, even within just a year, it's in thousands. Australia is still very quiet. We have written to Australian government several times, not only PASA, PCP, Migrant, they have written, and other organizations have written to the Australian government to ask them to use their influence or to call the attention of the Philippine government because of the piling up of extrajudicial killings. We haven't seen any statement of the Prime Minister or even the Minister Maurice Payne about the human rights violation in the Philippines. I, I don't know if there are, they have, a, they have, have a, a statement or any inclination that they are calling the attention of the Philippine government or criticizing the Philippine government because of human rights violation. We haven't seen any. Maybe I haven't seen them, but we haven't heard of any. You probably have come across, you know, the, our statement when the Philippine military came to Australia in February to actually attack different civil state organizations that are operating here, assisting the... Filipino migrants. And uh, we were told uh, some of our friends, Solidarity Friends in Sydney, has actually written to the DFAT about that uh, and complained to the Australian government regarding the attacks, asked for a copy of the presentation that was given to the Filipino community, and they actually confirmed that this military, uh, which is headed by General uh, Parnade, authority has met with the Department of Foreign Affairs Office and the, the National Defense Department of uh, the Minister for Defense, uh, so met with the Office of Maurice Payne and Linda Reynolds before they have given that presentation to the Philippine community. So we believe that before that presentation was given, they already knew the objective of this military coming to Australia and meeting with Filipino community leaders. There is an agent here of the agency that the Duterte government has formed, which is called the NTFLC or the National Task Force to End Local Communist Conflict. And that is the agency that came to Australia to actually malign and red time and attack these civil society organizations here, including four Australians, and call them supporting terrorism in the Philippines. There is an agent here, and continues to attack this organization. And she was actually uh, interviewed in ready program operated by the Philippine National Police. She continues to attack and is actually an agent of the Philippine government. Her name is Liz Kimora. I heard, you know, the interview of uh, Alan Pads, the acting Minister for Immigration, when he said that there are actually foreign governments who are intervening in the community, in the multicultural community and creating division among the multicultural community here. And that is one. That person and the Philippine military, so they are actually interfering in Australia, attacking valid legal organizations and people here and creating divisions and putting the lives of the leaders of this organization in danger because they are accusing like this this is accusing actually the grande Gabriela, and Akbayan that they are actually soliciting money in Australia and sent to the Philippines to buy arms you think that without any hint of any fruit, it's actually putting Filipino community, you know, who are helping and advocating for the rights and welfare of Filipino migrants here, in danger? And uh, we are actually calling the Australian government to investigate this accusation, this person who is doing that accusation, and continue to post in the Facebook, continue to attack these uh, organizations.
2: And also, May, the fact that this new Anti-Terror Act in the Philippines can target Filipinos in Australia who have not become Australian citizens.
9: Yes, it can. It, it has actually an extraterritorial... It can actually attack the Filipinos here in Australia and even those Filipinos who are dual citizens. It's totally worrying because with the cooperation of the Australian military and the Australian government with the Philippine government. We are even worried of how the Australian government is treating Julian Assange, an Australian citizens. The Anti-Terrorism Act that was actually passed in the Philippines, and it was actually rushed and approved during the pandemic, is totally very worrying. It is like how the terrorism is defined is very vague. Not only vague, it expands, that it can criminalize freedom of speech, even freedom of association, freedom of assembly. it criminalized not just in the act, but the intent. And also in that law, the president has formed an anti-terrorism council. And this council is composed of presidential cabinet officials and retired generals serving under the president. And this council has the power to declare and proscribe organizations, parties, and peace persons as terrorists or terrorist sympathizers without the opportunity for these people to be heard in the court, without opportunity for this group or people to defend themselves. A certain council can prescribe, because I think in the international law, to prescribe someone or a group as terrorists, it has to be processed in the court of law. But this council, no, any person or any group that they don't like, they can just prescribe them out. This is a terrorist group. is subject to attack by the
2: military. Do you believe what we're seeing now in the Philippines is worse than what happened under Marcos? Worse.
9: It's worse than what uh, happened under Marcos. The Philippine president has no regard for law. Has no regard for human rights. Has no regard for people. They. He is actually very careless in in his declaration, in his statement, you know. And whatever he says, it is like a license for the Philippine military to act on it. So this is actually um, very dangerous. And with the pandemic, they have enacted a lot of like presidential decrees, law or act that is very detrimental to the human rights or to the people, the Filipino people. Like this APL or anti-terrorism law is actually a draconian law. It impinges on human rights, basic human rights of every Filipino, wherever they are, whether they are in the Philippines or whether they are abroad. Another thing also that is problematic, Australia is still supporting the Philippine government, the Philippine president. Under Marcos, Australia at least you know, expressed their worries of the martial law Under this government, we don't hear anything from Australia. I hope that maybe Australia will consider, you know, the the support, especially the military support to the Philippine government and to the Philippine military. Because we believe that one country is supporting a president or a government that is actually like, like a fascist government or have a very poor human rights record then especially supporting financially and also supporting with uh, military advisors, with military personnel, then we believe that it is helping to enable that government to continue with its current activity, with its current human rights violation.
2: Philippine Australia, activist May Takas
1: lasting delusion about children trapped in tunnels.
2: That's how we
1: got Aussie Q it seems and now everything else, I mean now it's just a six month pipeline from that to Australians who, who live in this alternate uh, American fantasy land where they post about Donald Trump all the time so it's ability to via Save the Children stuff to get a whole range of different political persuasions in is what I found fascinating You know, I talk a lot in the Aussie Q videos about how your auntie she might not be that far right wing now but she might be quite left she might just be a spiritual hippie type but there's this broad appeal to things like save the children and great awakenings there's almost a hippie-like quality to it particularly when you tone down the whole MAGA element of of traditional Q and it's getting people in there but Q is not just a conspiracy theory is it it is this conspiracy theory that is meant to drag you right after a few months so your auntie's going to be talking about make Australia great again in six months if she isn't right
2: now You're listening to Radical Radio 3CR. In a number of countries, elections have been either cancelled or postponed due to the coronavirus. But as of now, the National Assembly elections in Venezuela are on track to be held in December. I spoke with activist, journalist and researcher Fred Fuentes about this and a number of issues relating to the northern South American country and began by asking him about the system of government in Venezuela. How does it differ or compare with the Australian electoral system?
0: What we have is a scenario in Venezuela where currently we essentially have de facto two national assemblies. There was a national, certainly at least a uh, executive of the National Assembly. The last National Assembly elections was in 2015, in which the opposition won those elections, both in terms of a majority vote. Uh, they won about roughly 54% of the vote, but that was a, enough to secure them, essentially pretty much close to two-thirds of the entire National Assembly. So since that time, the the opposition have had control of the National Assembly and have attempted to use the National Assembly and and the powers that it has to campaign to uh, remove Carlos Maduro as as the president of the country. What we've seen in the last two years regarding the National Assembly was that at the start of 2019, uh, we had the newly uh, elected president of the National Assembly, Juan Guaido, self-proclaiming himself as interim president, claiming that the elections that Nicolas Maduro had won in 2018 were illegitimate, and so therefore the deemed that the position of president was vacant and that, according to the Constitution, the head of the National Assembly could assume that post. So Juan Guaido continues to claim that that position of of being Venezuela's interim president, a position that's supported by about 50 or so uh, countries around the world, mainly US, European countries uh, and Australia, and then the problem was is that his term as President of the National Assembly only lasts for one year, or better said, every year the National Assembly elects a new executive, including President of the National Assembly, and there was a dispute in the National Assembly on that, and a different opposition politician put himself up to be the President of the National Assembly. So you've got this scenario now in Venezuela, where we have got two competing heads of the National Assembly. You've got one of them to claiming to be the President of the country, while you have Nicolás Maduro, who won the last presidential election. And to top it all off, according to the Constitution, the National Assembly is due for elections this year in December. So this, this is a scenario that you know, everyone is faced with. And the question, of course, is who will go to elections? Who will support these elections? Who will seek to boycott the elections? What will be the end result of these elections? And what will it mean for Juan Guaido, given that at the moment he's calling to boycott these elections? but maintaining that he'll continue to be the president of the existing National Assembly. And from president, uh, you've got opposition parties that are, are refusing to go along with Juan Guaido and saying that they will participate in these elections. And of course, the, the government, uh, who's more than interested in ensuring these elections go ahead as an attempt to both regain control of the National Assembly and, reassert some kind of legitimacy in terms of the institutional crisis that, that's existed in Venezuela, as I said, basically since the last National Assembly elections in, in 2015.
2: Just exactly what does, and how does that compare to maybe the House of Representatives or the Senate here in Australia?
0: It's largely the same, So what, except the difference is that the, the, the National Assembly just has the one chamber. It has about 150 representatives, although the new law passed by the non-Guaido National Assembly uh, has meant that there'll be now an expansion of representation in the National Assembly so it's looked at about 220 or so representatives will be elected to the National Assembly and the National Assembly obviously on one hand is important in terms of passing legislation that's been a, a key part of what the fact that the opposition has controlled the National Assembly has meant that the, the government hasn't been able to pass legislation although in many cases the government has been able to bypass that via by executive decrees. So that's been less of an issue. One big issue, though, for, for the government is that all treaties and contracts involving state companies, in particular the state oil company, PEDERESA, uh, need to be approved by the National Assembly. And what this means is, of course, on the one hand, the opposition can use that to stop the government being able to do any kind of uh, uh, trade or, or signing of contracts. It that even international investors are very hesitant to do business with the Venezuelan government because there's always a fear that given that those contracts are not legal authorized by the National Assembly, that should anything happen in Venezuela with a change of government or should the, should the terms of contracts not be met, that those could very quickly be challenged and deemed null on board. it also had an impact in that. In, in the broader economic crisis, although it's not the, not the main issue, but it, it, it is one instrument that the opposition has been able to use to, to sort of further deepen the economic turmoil in the country.
2: How do you see the US role in the run-up to this election?
0: Well, the US has made it very clear that uh, it rejects any elections that will occur and says that it will continue to support Juan Guaido as the interim president. So in this sense, uh, not only has it basically given itself the power to decide who, who is and who isn't the president and the, the National Assembly representative for, for the Venezuelan people, but it's also made it very clear to the more extreme wing of the opposition, which Juan Guaido represents, to continue their strategy of uh, abstention, boycott of the electoral sphere and seeking Maduro's overthrow by a non-electoral, non-democratic means. This, for instance, contrast uh, with the position that obviously a section of the Venezuelan opposition has taken which is to either on the one hand just directly participate in the elections or two she's a new position that's emerged in the last few months spearheaded by enrique capriles a former opposition presidential candidate and someone with a lot of authority like someone who had been basically sidelined by juan guaidó who's reinserted himself into the political debate saying that he wants to participate in these National Assembly elections, but that he will only do so if the conditions are made appropriate. And so this, of course, is is acting as a a pressure on the Maduro government to sit down and negotiate with the opposition the terms for these elections. And as a result of that, we've already seen, for example, something like 100 and 110 opposition figures who have been in prison being released or, at the very minimum, allowed to go into house arrest. By and large, they've been released. And what we've also seen is that the the Venezuelan government has asked the European Union to come and be official observers of these elections, a a demand that Enrique Capriles has been making, and which the European Union has expressed its interest to do so, although at the same time it says that it does not believe that currently the conditions are available, either for the elections to go ahead on December 6th or for itself to prepare a team of uh, observers to go there. So we'll have to see what happens, but we see there... Already differences emerging, not just in terms of the different countries that, up until today, have been endorsing Juan Guaido as the so-called interim president, but also the divisions or the different positions that are opening up amongst the Venezuelan opposition in face of the December 6 elections.
2: Well, in the past, there's always been the cries of it's rigged, it's rigged. Is that likely to happen again this time?
0: Uh, there is a section of the opposition, which backed by or that back Juan Guaido, who say that it's impossible to have elections that are not rigged and so hence has said that they will refuse to participate in, in any elections. This is different though from the position of Enrique Capriles who has said that whilst he believes currently the conditions are not there for free and fair elections, that he believes that through negotiation and political pressure through street protests that such conditions can be created. So of course we'll have to see what happens, we'll have to see what happens in those negotiations, we'll have to see if that wing of the opposition behind Enrique Capriles ultimately decides to participate in the elections or not, it wouldn't be unheard of for them to simultaneously participate but decry the conditions in the sense of wanting to keep their uh, supporters mobilized, in the sense of wanting to regain some momentum. The challenge the opposition really faces is at the moment they're kind of the Juan Guaidó strategy of just declaring themselves interim president has just run its course, has really achieved very little to nothing. And is now facing its own institutional crisis, its own crisis of legitimacy, given that now Juan Guaido arguably isn't even the president of the National Assembly anymore. And as of December, or certainly as of January, will be a part of a, will have been uh, the head of a National Assembly that no longer has any constitutional mandate as its term has, has expired. So this is the, 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 the bind, I suppose, or, or the challenge uh, that the opposition faces of how to manoeuvre in this next period. Uh, how to win leadership first within the opposition for a particular position, be that to abstain, be that to participate, be that to participate but in a critical manner. But certainly there's a general sense in the opposition that the the, the electoral sphere is balanced against them and so it'd be extremely unlikely that we wouldn't see at least a section of the opposition even before the election's already questioning the results.
2: When they say the conditions aren't there for free and fair elections, what do they want?
0: Here again, it depends on which section of the opposition we're talking about. So, for instance, Juan Guaido's position is that no elections, uh, as long as Maduro is president, can be free or fair. The argument being that Guaido puts forward is that Maduro is an illegitimate president, that therefore is an undemocratic regime uh, that's in power, and so therefore nothing, nothing can really be free or fair unless Maduro steps down. That's not quite the position that Enrique Capriles uh, has been putting forward. He, obviously, he also wants to see Maduro gone, but he's not making it a prerequisite that Maduro has to resign before any participation in the election. Instead, what they're arguing, and in some cases have a valid points to make, are questions of interference by the electoral court in the registration or political registration of parties. I have seen in the last few months the, the electoral courts intervening in internal within some of the opposition parties largely because those parties have been split where the majority leadership have been in favour of boycotting the elections whilst a minority of those including some sitting MPs who want to stand for re-election have essentially applied to the court to have the court give, give over control of those parties to those that want to participate so of course this has caused internal ruptures in those parties and and the opposition have said, look, the, the, the electoral court can't interfere in these internal debates of, of political parties, that they have their own internal democratic structures and should decide their own policies that way. And we've already seen, in some cases, the, the electoral court reversing its decisions in regarding to intervening in some of these op- opposition parties. The question of opposition figures who are in prison being freed, of course, is another issue that they say is a big part of being able to have free, fair elections, that is, that these people should be able to stand as candidates in these elections. And there is also the, the longer standing issue of, of the proscription of some of these candidates, including Enrique Capriles himself, who uh, is currently barred from being able to stand as a candidate, at least for a couple more years until his, 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 his suspension is lifted.
2: Why is he suspended?
0: He was suspended because he was found by uh, the courts to have been involved in essentially misuse of public government funds during his time as the governor of, of the state of Miranda under the Venezuelan law, if you're Basically found guilty of corruption, generally part of well, obviously there's the legal determinations that occur in regards to any fine or prison that that a person might have to do, but uh, but the law also states that a, a ban on a person being able to stand for office at least for a determined period, so it's not an indefinite ban. You know, has to be fulfilled. So currently. Enrique Capriles is, is fulfilling that sort of barring of his abilities to, to stand for office. Enrique Capriles would challenge that and say that it was an unfair court case and that it was a political trial to, to stop, to bar him from being running as a candidate. But that's currently the situation mm-hmm. and hence why one of the sort of conditions or demands that the opposition has been putting is to overturn or to give some leniency some of these cases of opposition figures who are barred from running as a sign of goodwill from the government that they are willing to participate in, in free and fair elections. I'd also add the other one, which is a crucial one, I think, for the opposition, is the participation of international observers, uh, whether they be UN, uh, whether they be European observers or both. I think this is a, a really important question as well for the opposition as they believe that, you know, they, they have the numbers and they can win the elections, but without some kind of observers to, to monitor and ensure that the votes that are cast are counted, so that they feel that no results can be trusted.
2: Looking at the, the importance of the US sanctions, when people were looking at a, a, a small country right on the north of South America they'd see all these sanctions against the government. Is it because the government won't kowtow to America? Is it because they've got too much oil? Why it's Venezuela?
0: I think there's, there's a number of reasons. Of course, you know, the US has never made it any secret that uh, it, you know, it, it covets the oil in Venezuela. Venezuela is, you know, according to some, sits on top of the largest oil reserves uh, in the world, and it's a lot closer than the oil that you know the U.S. might be getting from the Middle East or from from other areas of the world. So that is an important bit. But I, I also think there's a there's a bigger issue at stake, and that is that essentially for the last twenty odd years since the election of Hugo Chavez in 1998, Venezuela has really much been at the spearhead of pursuing not so much an, an anti-U.S. policy, but certainly a policy of regional integration. That sort of said, look, rather than to the north, our most important trade partner, and taking direction of what Washington says, let's work together as a continent to help each other. And we saw throughout much of the early 2000s, uh, what well, throughout the 2000s, um, that this process of integration was speeding forward as other progressive. Uh, even in some cases not tremendously progressive, but certainly governments that saw which way the wind was blowing in the continent and felt they had to be part of this sort of process of of regional integration. That's been run back to a large extent, let's say five or uh, eight years, uh, as a number of those progressive or centre governments have been removed, in some cases in elections, in some cases via uh, parliamentary coups or or military coups or uh, other undemocratic means. But Venezuela still remains there, and it's something that the U.S. wants to get rid of. It wants to send a clear message uh, that it won't tolerate a government in the region that tries to stake out an independent foreign policy, or a policy that challenges U.S. interests in the region. And it certainly wants to send a message that it won't tolerate political movements like Chavismo.
2: I've been speaking with journalist and researcher and author Fred Fuentes, and we'll hear more about Venezuela from him next week. Global Intifada, bringing you current affairs through revolutionary and protest
10: music from around the world.
9: Every Thursday afternoon from 5 till 6 on 3CR.
10: Because music is our bomb.
2: Housing for the Aged Action Group has gone digital to help stop the spread of the coronavirus, but we're still here. If you're over 50 years old and having problems with your housing, we can help. If you're having trouble paying the rent, problems with your retirement village manager or concerned about your caravan park, give us a call on 1300 765 178. We can also help connect you with aged care services and emergency relief if you need it. Stay safe, everyone. With UN bodies calling for urgent action in Gaza with a deadly second wave of coronavirus, the Australian Palestine Advocacy Network is asking its supporters to give money to Gaza. One of the organisations they are recommending is Olive Kids, run by passionate volunteers from a range of professions. One of their major events has been a yearly dinner and fundraiser in June each year, but with everything else here in Victoria and elsewhere, That was not possible. So today, I'm talking to Amin Abbas from the Olive Kids Foundation to explain how you can support their work in Gaza. But first, Amin, Olive Kids has been working for Palestinian kids for over 10 years. How did it begin and, and was it a consequence of 2007 and the blockading of Gaza?
8: I think it was probably partially to do with that and in addition also to some of the restrictions and challenges that many organizations had in the back of September 11th where aid in general was a lot more difficult and challenging. I think if you think about that time before September 11th, a lot of the communities used to send money to their families and the families would know people that need help. Uh, and a lot of that stuff was actually, or that aid was unstructured. And uh, in the back of September 11th, there was a lot more scrutiny to any such money for good reasons, uh, obviously quite often, but also at times it was actually very challenging. So there was like, obviously, a lot of those needy families and, and needy organizations started to really suffer and and, and hence uh, the thought process was from few of us. Here in Australia is to try and help by doing everything on uh, overboard and ensure that we have an organisation that can uh, offer sustainable aid for such families, especially in the refugee camps, but also in Gaza and, and in Palestine.
2: And in that difficult period, how did you get the aid through? How did the support get through to the people?
8: We always have people, basically, or organisations that we find that with on the ground. So typically, all of gets would be reviewing candidates for partnership by going through due diligence, verifying that they're the right partners for us. But we've never actually had people on the ground. Uh, Few of us have actually visited or verified the work that we actually do uh, as part of our, maybe like, you know, time off for holidays, but never uh, through like having physical presence on the ground uh, in that part of the world in Palestine. So um, yeah, our aid was always done through like bank transfers uh, to the organisations that we partner with, and um, we quite often get audited for the work that we do, which is always also welcome because everything that we do is obviously uh, following like the processes that are prescribed by the ACNC, the Australian Commission for uh, for non-profits and charities.
2: Talk about some of those local NGOs and the work that they do. Like we actually.
8: Do work in kind of three main areas. One is obviously financial support. Uh, another is, is in the medical space, and and the third is uh, in education. From like very early days, we partnered with Al Amal, which is an orphanage in Gaza. That has been actually established uh, around uh, 1948, I think, or 45. Uh, so it's been like you know operating in Gaza for many many years, and uh, we we kind of you know. Uh, found that this organization would be a, like a good uh, organization to partner with due to the focus that they have on children, which is something that is the main uh, mission of Olive of Kids is to help the children of Palestine. So this, is, this was one of the organizations that we supported or partnered with in uh, sponsoring children who lost one or two of their parents, uh, in addition to obviously uh, running some very specific projects with them uh, relating to the children. The other organization is the Union of Health Workers, that is also in Gaza where we uh, typically do medical missions every year to that organization where uh, for a couple of weeks we send uh, surgeons from Australia to do like complex operations but also uh, do skills transfer to the uh, uh, doctors in Gaza. And the third is through education. We do that at times with through, like program specifically for the children. But we have also uh, had a relationship with Gaza University, Gaza Islamic University, where We sponsor nursing scholarships. Uh, We've completed three. We're about to embark on on seven, which is something that we feel would be very needed in the health sector. So kind of, you know, marries both the medical side but also the education side. Uh, Obviously, we only uh, offer scholarships for students that have high grades but also from very poor families where they cannot afford the fees of education.
2: Just go back to the orphanage for a bit. Even children who still have a parent, Are taken in by the orphanage aren't they because they are in need and their parents just can't look after them because of the financial situation?
8: Like 99% of the cases uh, would be uh, a father uh, who is lost which is kind of if from a cultural perspective in that part of the world typically the father is the provider so quite often what you will find is some of those children that are considered orphaned would be either like losing both parents in, in few scenarios as well, obviously particularly after a lot of wars that happen in Gaza and very poor health system. But quite a few uh, would have like a mother where either like due to remarriage or like a very poor families would potentially have some of the children basically go to the orphanage.
2: Can you describe the orphanage and what you've been able to achieve with the local People over those years with that orphanage?
8: We actually had uh, lots and lots of uh, children sponsored. We've run a lot of programs. Uh, we actually recently helped build a new wing for the children that are under five years old with the orphanage. We actually recently also, like last year, started a program to fund a sports teacher, a PE teacher for the girls, uh, including purchasing sports kits for the girls. So we've actually done quite a lot of programs. We've done some capacity building and education programs as well, including giving them some nutrition training, giving them some like a training around dealing with uh, children that face trauma. So we've, we've kind of done quite a lot of work with them over the years. And, yeah, we're proud of that relationship and what we've achieved with, together over uh, the last 10 or so years.
2: And when the children reach age 18, they get support to go out into the big world, don't they?
8: Uh, they do. So, so part of our child sponsorship program is not to spend the like it's it's a kind of the typical fifty dollars a month sponsorship for the child. But instead of like spending the the full fifty dollars, what we what we do is we actually take around forty percent of that fifty dollars and put it in a in a bank account in the trust for the child. Where when they reach eighteen, uh, there's a kind of a small. It's not like nothing obviously of, uh, of major significance, but at least it's it's. Uh, a small amount of money that will help them with their education or whatever they choose to do when they reach 18. Uh, so we thought this would be a good way of having that program offering the child something at the start of their of their life when they get to 18.
2: Who do you work with in that medical system? Is it the small health centres or is it a, a larger hospital? And I'd imagine that over the years, with all the bombardments every couple of years of Gaza, that a lot of the infrastructure has been destroyed?
8: That is very true. So sadly, the situation in Gaza, obviously, where it's... Well, it, there's a lot of complications. Uh, so for, to start with, the Union of Health Workers Committee is a combination of few medical centres, plus Alauda Hospital, which is a, a hospital that's kind of part of the responsibility of the committee uh, that we work with. Uh, but keep in mind that after, like, so many years under siege, 14 or 15 years of uh, under siege, uh, a Gaza population that is over 2 million, uh, which is one of the like most densely populated areas on Earth, has been facing massive challenges around infrastructure, lack of funding. So the health system, and just to put that into con- context to, to your listeners, uh, we're talking about less than 100 intensive care uh, beds for the whole of the strip. So 2 million people with, with less than 100 uh, intensive care uh, beds. So we're talking about a health system that is totally underfunded. It's been overstretched for years and years after all these wars. Infrastructure in the country itself that is so bad and poor. So it's, it's not really a situation uh, that anybody would want to live in, particularly in being in a, in, a, in a situation where you can't even leave, leave that strip at all.
2: And a traumatized society.
8: Absolutely. Society that is traumatized. And, and look, I mean, our focus obviously is on the children. Uh, and in, in so many ways, the children in Gaza have no childhood. They can't really live that childhood. They really uh, are robbed that, that uh, uh, you know, ch- uh, childhood from the get-go because of the circumstances and the conditions that they actually live in.
2: Talk about the surgeons who leave here to spend some time working to help the people and also to train local people. What's the restrictions on people going into Gaza now?
8: So we've actually done these missions annually until last year. Due to the March of Return, we were unable, due to the conditions in Gaza, to have the medical delegation travel. Typically, Professor David Crocker actually goes to Gaza with a couple of surgeons and this what last year we couldn't this year obviously due to the travel restrictions because of covid we're also unable to do that for that before then we're actually able at least to do one mission a year but typically what happens is for a couple of weeks uh there's a lot of cases that get booked Allow the hospital is where typically uh all these operations take place or there's surgeries and there's a. Uh, Typically, uh, the surgeons in Gaza that attend a lot of those surgeries and operations. There's some seminars that run alongside that two weeks of the uh, delegation being present in Gaza. So all of kids uh, sponsor the travel, although Professor David in particular actually refuses to allow us to cover his trips. He usually uh, kind of joins them to his own conferences in the region or or in Europe. But we, we typically cover the cost of the other surgeons and also the accommodation for the team.
2: In the education sphere, do you work with ONURA or are you working mainly with just the Palestinian people in that education system?
8: Uh, We have in the past collaborated with ONURA, especially around some very targeted programs. For example, we actually purchased lots of uh, balls, soccer balls and basketballs and volleyballs years ago to a lot of the ONURA schools as part of a program to really help offer the children the ability to do something something useful in the sports area. Remember, like, we, we were speaking just before about how the children basically don't have many opportunities to to enjoy their childhood. And, and something as simple as offering them ability to uh, uh, play sport was something that we wanted to do. And we had a, a few years ago a program to basically provide the Odawa schools with, with some of that sports equipment and particularly with, with uh, sports balls.
2: I know it's a great loss to not be able to have your June dinner and fundraiser, how much do you normally raise during that time?
8: We have annual fundraisers obviously and it depends on what uh, the campaign uh, that we're working on and what kind of interest we have from our donors, so it it kind of varies. Typically we're talking between 75 to 100 and 120 grand uh, there were years that we've managed to raise uh, close to 200, especially when we're building the wing. Uh, but typically we're talking about, like, you know, 100,000 was typical for our uh, uh, annual dinners. This year, obviously, due to COVID, we were unable to, to do that. So we had to make do sure with innovating and, and going with a virtual campaigns.
2: And what have those campaigns been?
8: So far, we actually have done three campaigns and we're, uh, the fourth is underway. So the first one was actually at the start of March. With the start of COVID, we wanted to start by distributing hygiene packages and food packages to the food families in Gaza. So we've raised $40,000 to buy 700 hygiene packages and also 700 food packages that were already distributed in collaboration with both Al-Amal and Mecca. Mecca is the Middle East Children Alliance. So um, we've, we've done that. And then we've done another campaign soon after around the Ramadan time frame. Uh, where it was mostly about sharing a meal with with families and uh, that was around the, the seven ten thousand uh, dollars campaign And then the third one which is was done recently was raising forty three thousand dollars To buy 500 school uniforms in fact we actually to try and help Also, the the parents of the orphan like the especially in the case of the mothers uh, to actually get them to create the uniforms themselves. So we actually had a that like, funded by having the workshop at Al-Amal where instead of buying those uniforms, we actually bought the fabric and all the material for uh, uh, some of those mothers to actually create some of those uh, uniforms for the children. So this is kind of one of those uh, programs of 500 uniforms, 500 shoes, and 2,000 meals. For the children, and the cost was around uh, 43 grand. So, in total, it was roughly about $100,000 for the free campaign. But the more recent campaign that we're kind of halfway through, we've raised half the amount, is raising 70K as an emergency deal for Gaza. And again, you know, with obviously a lot of people. On uh, the lockdown, and, and I'm sure you you know that Gaza is predominantly uh, reliant on aid. So we we actually wanted to again do a lot of uh, food package distribution and hygiene packages. So we're aiming to distribute 600 both in food packages and hygiene packages. But uh, we also wanted to buy 2,000 COVID-19 tests, which we actually uh, sent this uh, uh, like the first portion of the money we we raised. We sent that to to allow us to buy those COVID-19 tests. And we also wanted to um, to buy fuel for the hospital generators, for Alaudah Hospital. Uh, and just to give, lucky like, you know, you've listened to some context there, that Israel cut the fuel supply for Gaza due to uh, some conflict between the authority and, and Israel. So the fact of the matter is a lot of the electricity or the main power plant in Gaza stopped operating which means that there's about like 20 hours of outages in power in Gaza. So uh, the the main purpose there is to ensure that at least the hospitals have enough fuel to keep the generators going during those critical times of COVID situation.
2: They are huge amounts of money that you have raised, your small organisation. Some people must be, or many people must be spending many, many, many hours putting all this together and running these appeals
8: Absolutely. And and just um, to kind of call that out, All It Kids is 100% volunteering organization. We have nobody on a salary. A dollar raised is a dollar spent in, you know, relation to campaigns or uh, in Gaza or in refugee camps. So uh, there's massive hours. You know, we're we're very proud of the volunteers and the board members who are all professionals that are very passionate about the cause and the purpose of helping the children of Palestine. So we're, you know, also like in in many ways very lucky to have such dedicated and passionate people that are willing to give so many hours. And you're absolutely right. It's uh, not a small feat. And over the years, obviously, we've raised uh, thousands and thousands of dollars. Uh, I think in in maybe like if I, I, I must if I can put a, uh, Precise estimate on that, but but we're definitely talking about a few million dollars that we actually raised over the years. But more importantly than the dollars is uh, the change that we were able to to do to help like, change the lives of many of those children in in Palestine, at least in some sort of small way. We're kind of scratching the surface. We're talking about something that is you know much bigger than us, but. Uh, Sometimes smaller organizations like Olive Gifts, the, the, the change that they do on the ground sometimes is bigger than, than governments where a lot of that aid money starts through so many other bills and whistles and, and you know, uh, restrictions and, and consulting firms and red tape and all the rest of it. So we, we kind of, you know, uh, are able to ensure that that money is delivered and this is where a smaller organization can definitely make a change, make a difference.
2: Can you talk about some of the feedback you might get from the children and their parents? Look, I mean, it's
8: always heartwarming to hear feedback from uh, the children and definitely the, the parents. It's in so many ways, uh, you know, the massive help that we actually think we, or the small help that we we are sending is actually a massive help for them. Small amounts of money can make a massive difference in, in a society like the one in Gaza. One of the best things that we, you know, that makes you really happy is not so much what, uh, you know, you get physically sometimes in this life, it's more that contribution and and actually uh, feeling that you're making somebody else so happy. And uh, definitely some of the messages that we get every year, especially when we get the reports on the sponsored children, is always like, makes us feel very, very proud of what we do.
2: Your comments on the the recent deal between the US, Netanyahu, UAE and Bahrain, you've written a, a piece for the Middle East Monitor, titled "The UAE's Hope Probe Offers No Hope for the Palestinians," can you explain the issues of your, as you've pointed them out that led to this dark conclusion?
8: Yeah. So look, I, I guess one maybe there's a couple of points to quickly uh, touch on uh, around that. So, well, firstly, this is not really a peace between like a peace deal between people. This is really a, a kind of a measure of convenience between despots and basically authoritarian rulers in the Gulf and Israel, a country that is, uh, continues to be more racist in its, its government and also in the way it rules over and oppresses the Palestinians for uh, you know, the, be- the best part of the last uh, seven decades really. So uh, to, to put that into context, you're talking about Gulf countries that, are, that have absolutely no power from their own people Actually, a case in point there is Kuwait is the only country that's very much against normalization and against this peace deal, and it happens to be the only Gulf country with an elected parliament. So that's obviously very telling that the only country that is, to an extent, ruled its own people is actually dead against the, the current deal. So you're talking about governments that are uh, predominantly wanting to protect themselves, uh, and they're finding uh, Israel as a good protector from. Uh, their own people predominantly and you hear obviously them talking about Iran as being obviously a big threat for them. So this is kind of one important piece to keep in mind that this is not the view of the Gulf people, this is the view of those despots in in that part of the world that they want protection and they feel that Trump and Netanyahu were able to offer them such, uh, such help or such protection. Uh, and the second point to really quickly mention is that this is nothing new, this is uh, in fact more of a a coming out party to uh, with these governments really having a relationship with Israel for uh, the best part of the last decade, really. Uh, It's known that Israel has kind of perfected the technology of surveillance over people and particularly the Palestinians for the last so many years. And this is technology that, uh, you know, this part of the world would be very keen to to buy and they've been buying it for so many years. So that relationship has been there for quite a while. And maybe the, the last one is that It's not even recent. This is like a historical where the Gulf monarchies and and Israel is actually, like both of them are the creation of, uh, you know, colonial time. So they're both a product of colonial time. So there's definitely some creation there, which also reminds you of like how Israel has also been very close to such, you know, constructs uh, over the last, you know, maybe uh, um, a few decades as well. If you remember, South Africa was actually a very strong friend of Israel as well. Uh, apartheid South Africa so that kind of you know gives us some of that like you know uh, a current situation with this like what what ele- is allegedly a peace deal or a, or a peace between uh, these Gulf countries in Israel it is more or less despots and and a racist country that uh, feeling the strong affiliation
2: nevertheless what's the psychological impact for the Palestinian people to know that these despotic leaders are in bed with Netanyahu
8: the, the, the fact of the matter is, or the depressing part, is that there's absolutely no change that will happen to them. Facts on the ground are that, you know, people in Gaza are still under siege and nothing will change. People in the West Bank are still being, land is being annexed and settlements are being built. And they're, you know, obviously spending hours and hours on checkpoints. Funny that flight that took place between Tel Aviv and, and Abu Dhabi recently uh, that took only a few hours and it was like, uh, you know, considered a massive, you know, step towards like uh, the future of peace. It really takes a Palestinian to cross between city and city, probably a 15, 20 minutes drive, hours uh, like spent at checkpoints because of the Israeli occupation. It really takes longer to really uh, move between two cities in the West Bank compared to really flying now. Uh, between Tel Aviv and Abu Dhabi. So that's really telling. So for the Palestinians, nothing has changed. In fact, if anything, it's it's making the situation worse. So, yeah, it's definitely very depressing and very sad. And if you think about, like, every time the word peace is actually uttered, uh, Palestinians are not consulted. They're not actually part of it. They don't even have a seat at a table. So, um, you know, that's definitely very telling.
2: In one sense, it's depressing. But in another, it activates a lot more people. Because they realize what's happening.
8: You're absolutely right. I think if, if, you, if you think about the world today, and look, I mean, fundamentally, the whole conflict is ultimately about human rights and equality. This is not a question of borders or countries or flags or anthems, really. Ultimately, it is about human rights and the rights of Palestinians to really live in dignity on their own land. And what's really been happening recently, if you think about how the world has been moving, the intersectionality of the struggle has never been clearer, really. I mean, between black indigenous movements and what's happening in Black Lives Matter in, in, in the U.S. And, and the, like, you know, the First Nations throughout the world, including for us here in Australia and the, the Palestinian struggle, it's never been like, you know, that, that, that closer which brings that point about the world is really starting to see it for what it is, really. So uh, there's definitely a lot more support for the Palestinians from the grassroots movements, not so much from these governments, the likes of obviously Trump government or Netanyahu, or those Gulf states, but we're talking about the grassroots, the people uh, everywhere, especially with social media, starting to really comprehend uh, basically the challenges and the situation that the Palestinians face and definitely the commonalities between uh, that struggle and a lot of those other struggles elsewhere.
2: And here in Australia, the connections now with Black Palestine?
8: Absolutely. I mean, the indigenous struggle here in Australia and the Palestinian struggle has never been that close. There's been a lot more uh, collaboration and, and discussions. And definitely, this is something that will continue to grow over time. There's no questions about it. Maybe the last word is... Fundamentally, about you know understanding that this is ultimately about human rights, not about anything else, and not be misled by uh, these deals. Uh, and ultimately, the Palestinians need every help that they can get, and that they can, you know, help olive kids, that will be highly valued. And uh, we, we thank them for the contribution.
2: And how do people make that contribution? Uh, the easiest way is to go to the olive kids website,
8: olivekids.org.au/donate. Uh, is the easiest way, and uh, they can definitely contact us through that help uh, that website as well.
2: Thank you so much.
8: Pleasure.
2: I've been speaking with Amanda Bus from Olive Kids and if you'd like to assist their work,
6: it's olivekids.org.au
2: hearings in the Old Bailey in London for Australian journalist and publisher Julian Assange. At the weekend, I spoke once again with journalist and activist Jacob Greck. Jacob, the British justice system would have recorded, I reckon, about one out of ten for its first week of the hearing. What's the score for week two?
10: Well, what did who get? Julian's team or the system of British justice?
2: System of British justice.
10: Well, probably about 1.2. Actually, um, I won't say a little better, not as bad this week as they were last week. There was actually a time when um, the magistrate actually contradicted or stood up to the prosecutor, which was a little bit unusual. Took everybody's breath away, I've got to say. Why? Well, because the prosecutor used terms like guillotined witness and lost his temper with the magistrate because he didn't get exactly everything his own way. She gave him the whole pie with the cream on top and he sort of wins he never had half a strawberry or something, you know?
2: All right. Well, what what about Julian's team? What do they get? Well,
10: it's, it, it is a strange one because I reckon they're actually managing. They've got their witnesses in. And the unusual thing or the hard thing is that because they gave, they submitted their witness list before the indictment was replaced or the superseding indictment was replaced with a replacement superseding second indictment. They had to stick with their witnesses. Now, often the witnesses, well, the witnesses, of course, were briefed and gave their testimony, written testimony, only in terms of the allegations of the first superseding indictment. Now, you get people like Daniel Ellsberg, who's got to be... You know, ninety-something now, receiving the second, in, the superseding indictment at three a.m. before needing to get up at six a.m. his local time to give to give his testimony. So he we had, it well, nine a.m. Sorry, so he had literally six hours to read hundreds of pages of a new indictment and incorporate incorporate that into his witness statement. Now, someone of the integrity and the Rigor of Ellsberg can do that, but you wouldn't expect. I'd hate to do it, put it that way. But nonetheless, what we're seeing is the prosecutors. What's how can I put it? Insisting on people giving binary answers, yes/no answers, and without fail, the witnesses standing up to him and saying, "No, it's not a binary question." And you know, the prosecutor Lewis using terms like, "Quoting a um." a court case from 10 years ago, saying, now, if this was the case, would that be true? And, you know, the witness saying, well, I'm not going to answer on a hypothetical. We have things, for example, the witnesses, the defence witnesses, are only allowed to give a half-hour presentation, but then cross-examination is allowed to take four hours. And in the cross-examination of, I think it was um, Feldstein. The, the prosecutor spoke for five times as long as the witness did. So if you want to have a description of railroading a witness to talk for actually five times as long in your questioning and badgering of a witness, then you're given the witness to speak. That's what's going on. Now, that was the, that was the extreme one. And that was a, that was a witness, um, Feldstein, Mark Feldstein, who's um, chair of broadcast journalism at uh, Maryland University, and he's seen as an expert on a whole a whole lot of um, journalistic methods and principles. So he was there as an expert witness on on journalism. But the prosecution went on and on and on, badgering their witnesses. You had a bloke Trevor Tim, who's um, from the Freedom of Press Foundation, who again was badgered by the prosecution. He talked about the way that mainstream media are utilising the same kind of secure Dropbox uh, methods that WikiLeaks use to get information, and, and the fact that if, Wiki, if Julian was charged on this, then so would the editors of other mainstream media. And um, You had John Gertz from The Spiegel, spoke about how he sat with Julian and how Julian was meticulous in redaction, redacting names. Ellsberg, of course, spoke about the fact that the charges were dropped against him because it was found out that the US prosecution had privy to his private counsel with his universities, uh, sorry, with um, with his legal team. So everything the defence is bringing up is actually getting heard in court. Now the problem is that the court is putting so much barriers. I mean they've even banned Amnesty International from having access to the proceedings. Now can you imagine what would happen if it were any other country in the world where the Justice Department banned Amnesty International from having access to the proceedings. There's only one organisation And that's Reporters Without Borders, Reporters Sans Frontier, who have access. And so they're having to feed out bit by bit, bit by bit, to all the other journalists outside the United Kingdom in the world. Which just goes to show you the level of obstruction that's been put in place to stop the show trial, the circus, the farce, to the rest of the world. Because... um, because that's what it is, it's a show trial, it's a farce, and yet still, no matter what else, still, the laws of British justice are such that the witnesses are still managing to get their point across, the defence is managing to get its point across, and the prosecution are, even to the people who are most on their side, are coming to be seen as basically bullies who don't even know the facts of their case.
2: Talk for a bit about Eric Lewis and his role over this week.
10: Eric Lewis, that's the witness Lewis rather than the prosecutor Lewis. That's right. He's an American lawyer, I know that much, and and he's seen as a bit of an expert on First Amendment principles. And he also represented a couple of people who were kept in Guantanamo Bay, I think it was, and was talking about the way that if Julian was um, extradited to the United States, the kind of conditions he'd be kept in, and the Special Administrative Measures, SAMs, they call them. And at that point, the other Lewis, the QC, is when he lost, it's at that point he lost his temper that I, that I said he couldn't interview, he couldn't cross-examine him for as long as he wanted to. So I guess James Lewis, talking about the extraordinary or special administration measures, was talking about the kind of Guantanamo Bay-like prison cell that Julian would be kept in, in the United States, the fact that he'd be 23 hours a day in solitary confinement and wouldn't have access to his lawyers. And he raised a whole lot of, what's the word, case history, that showed that how people he were trying were being treated in in, in the American judicial, sy- judicial system. Now, in the attack, the prosecutor James Lewis um, tried to say that he wasn't a mental health professional, that he had um that he could not comment on people's mental health, regardless of the fact that he was a lawyer. Um, defending people um, based on the grounds and the effect on their mental health. And, he, and the prosecutor also raised a couple of other um, times when people had special administrative measures used against them in the United States where they were. Um, they did have better conditions, that he was saying, um, but Eric Lewis went on. I mean, he was... He impressed people, by the way, by his knowledge of case law, of saying, oh, yeah, but that wasn't about publishing. That was about murder. That wasn't about publishing. That was about hacking. That wasn't about publishing. That was about whatever. So that's what James Lewis's testimony was about.
2: No, Eric
10: Eric Lewis testimony. Eric Lewis, that's what Eric Lewis's testimony was about.
2: Now, Craig Murray... It
10: was a little bit confusing for a while.
2: Yeah. Craig Murray yeah. Craig Marriott actually said that the attempts to denigrate and even humiliate the witness, I suppose that's what James Lewis tried to do to Eric Lewis.
10: That's what he was doing. He was saying, You're not a mental health professional. You had no idea about this case where this happened. You got you got no um no qualifications in basically anything relevant to it and, and um Eric Lewis kept coming back and saying, what I have is my expert testimony as a person who has been aware of the special administrative measures and has been representing people being kept under them. So, and this has been not just with Eric Lewis, this has been their tack time and time again, accusing people of not being expert witnesses. You know, they questioned Daniel Ellsberg, as to how any of his experiences germane to the case. What they're trying to do, because the the way they're badgering people and the way they're answering questions, you can only assume they know that they're on a loser here. They know they're on a loser, and so they've they've got to try to um, force people to speak in yes or no answers in order to try and entrap them into saying something they don't mean to say is is all we can work out.
2: Do we still have the few that are allowed in the public gallery having to climb the 132 steps?
10: Yep, we still have that. We still have that's. The, I mean, I was laughing with John Shipton about it. I said he's going to be, um, he's going to be skinnier by the next time I see him. You know, this is the point I'd like to make about that. It's been two weeks now. Now, okay, I wouldn't like to compare my you know previous role as building manager. At trades hall to being some kind of logistics manager of the of the old Bailey, but you can't get a lift working in two weeks. This is the kind of thing. Like at the first day, yeah, okay, it was a probably probably a stuff up, lifts break down from time to time. That's all there is to it. But lifts broken down for two weeks, that's un, un, unprecedented. Not even. As I say, not even here in Melbourne at Trades Hall would I've got away with keeping the lift broken down for two weeks. You also have the, the tech that they're using to, to go to the few journalists that are allowed to listen to is constantly playing up so that you're getting all the background noises from their offices and you can hardly hear anything. As I think it was actually Eric Lewis's testimony was being heard, what came over the, the speaker rather than Eric Lewis, drowning him out, in fact, was a Fox News report that was condemning Julian Assange. This is like, is that a hack or or is it incompetence?
2: Then we've got the second round of COVID-19 in England and Barista says, no, you don't have to wear a mask, not unless you want to.
10: Yeah, and meanwhile, Julian is sitting, Okay, he's a little bit closer in the old daily to his defence team, than he was at Belmarsh, but still, in order for his defence team to hear him, they've got to go right up to the slot, unless he wants to stand there and shout for all the courtroom to hear his questions and his advice to his defence team. His defence team have to go right up to his slot and basically put ear to mouth, or mouth to ear, um, depending on which way the communication was going. And this is at a time when they actually postponed the hearing for a couple of days because one of the prosecutor's team's partner um, was getting a COVID test because he was working with someone with COVID-like symptoms. So they're fully aware, on the one hand, that the the pandemic is a risk to the trial proceeding, and yet they're creating a situation where Julian and his defence team is put at risk because Belmars has had COVID outbreaks, and Julian, you know, when you think of the conditions, Julian is... Is woken up before dawn. He's then searched and X-rayed, and then put in the ventilated van. Driven forty minutes into the old Bailey, where he's searched again, and then put into his glass box. And at the end of it all, he's put into the back of the van. Driven another forty minutes, where he's strip searched and X-rayed again, before he's put his, put back in his cell. I mean, these are the kind of intimidatory methods that they're using. So, look, I'd like to make a point here, too. Like, while, of course, this trial, and we talk about it as as if it's Julian's extradition trial, and it is, but it's not actually... Whether Julian said this or did that or whether WikiLeaks did that or did the other is not actually what's on trial at the Old Bailey at the moment. What's actually on trial is whether the United States has the right to extradite a citizen of a third country for alleged crimes that took place outside of both US and UK jurisdiction. That's what this trial is actually about. It's not about whether Julian redacted the names, and he did. It's not about whether WikiLeaks acted in the public interest, and they did. It's about whether, under UK law, the United Kingdom can hold a citizen of a third country and pass them on for extradition to a citizen of a fourth country, giving them basically universal bailiwick. That's what... And, of course, Julian's important, and you know and most listeners would know that that's front and centre in my mind, but it's, it's not Julian that's on trial here as it's coming out. What looks like he's on trial to me is the whole system of British injustice, and it is the injustice of the British legal system. It's the circus of the British legal system. It's the conflict of interest in the British legal system. It's the lay-down mazare of the British legal system, where you have things like Vanessa Barista reading a pre-prepared judgment. She took out the back of her notebook without even disguising the fact after four hours of debate on day one of the hearing. From that moment, we knew it wasn't going to be a fair trial. Well, actually, before that. But what is on what is on trial at the moment is the British justice system itself.
2: Have you spoken to John in the last couple of days?
10: Yeah, I spoke to him well, a few days ago. I think it was Wednesday or Thursday. Look, he's holding up. All we can do, all he can do is hope that, Somehow, when the world sees what a mockery this trial is, when the wor- when the world actually gets the information that the defence is putting out, that justice will be served, and that's all he can hope for. And I mean, it's it's hard to break him, but you know, making him walk up five flights of stairs every every day, and then of course being locked there, just as you know, as he as he said to me, just as well I don't smoke like you do, Jacob. I'd be up and down those stairs all day. But having to do things like that and maintain his dignity is actually, I guess, counterintuitively of what they're trying to what they're trying to do is actually strengthening his, strengthen his resolve. He's remarkable in the in the strength of will that he's showing and being there to support Julian every day.
2: Is there a concern, though, that the world isn't finding out about what's happening? Because if you've only got three reporters in the press gallery...
10: We could just hope that people are relying on alternative alternative sources of media rather than the mainstream media. The mainstream media, if you look at the the BBC... Now, this is happening in London, in central London. And if you look at the BBC news site, for example, and I'm just... um, logging in now and as I'm talking to you to make sure it hasn't been updated. No, it's still there. The last time Julian Assange is mentioned on bbc.co.uk news was the 7th of September before his trial started, saying he's on his way to the Old Bailey for trial. So when I talk about British justice, it's more than British justice. It's the whole British system, not they've managed somehow to even stop the BBC reporting on it. And yet word is going out through a whole lot of alternative media sites, through WikiLeaks, through places like Craig Murray, through Consortium News, through um, Shadow Play, through a whole lot of places, blow-by-blow blow description, and, of course, on Twitter, blow-by-blow blow descriptions. The problem, though, is whether enough people actually get to read them. The other side of it too is that I think we need to face facts here. The reality is that whichever way the trial goes at the end of this hearing, if an extradition is allowed to proceed, no doubt the defence team will immediately put an appeal on to the Supreme Court and, and, the, and uh, the Lords, as would the American government if they if they lose. So I guess what I'm hoping for is that once it goes to a higher court and you have a whole lot of justices who are basically made their career and toward the end of their career and to some extent don't need to kowtow and don't need to answer, like people like Barista still need to do, that they might have some sense of justice. What we are seeing around the world, what we're seeing happen around the world is people like, you know, well, in Australia, for example... Uh, prime case is Bob Carr. People who, while they were in power, used every means they had to condemn Julian Assange and now have got a um, case of post-vention politics, I call it, and are now coming down in his support. So I can only really hope that that extends to people on the high court in the United Kingdom, that once they're at the end of their career and they're known, rightly or wrongly, for their insight and their sense of jurisprudence, which has earned them a place on the High Court, which is different to the High Court in the US or the, similar to the High Court here, that they may actually, well, for that reason, or whether they're just embarrassed to show the British trust in system being mocked and ridiculed everywhere else in the world, that they might actually give him a fair hearing. That's all I can hope for at the moment.
2: Jacob, is there any move to try and get him out of Belmarsh?
10: Look, there are always moves to try to get him out of Belmarsh, but they've made it clear, they've made it absolutely clear that that's not going to happen. I'm not privy to the inner discussions of the legal team, but I would assume that they've got, you know, a junior a junior lawyer continuing to work and continuing to push and continuing on on that issue of getting him to some getting him to somewhere safer, but. Look, they've made it absolutely clear that they're they're not going to transfer him. So they're going to leave him there until, well, either until he catches COVID or until he rots, or until they have a finding one way or the other. How many more days? It's hard to know. I think we've got another two weeks of this to to go yet, but it could go longer.
2: Thank you once again.
10: No worries, mate.
2: And you can hear more from Jacob on his program every Friday here at 3CR, the Friday Rave, 5pm.
10: G'day, this is Jacob from the Friday Rave. If the week's politics have left you wondering whether it's you or the rest of the planet that's gone completely and utterly bonkers, join us at 5 o'clock each and every Friday for a Friday Rave here on 3CR, where we'll do our best to reassure you that it is actually you, and us. The Friday Rave, bringing the 5 o'clock drinks debrief to you here on Community Radio 3CR.